We would like to first acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering grounds for many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I'm Dylan Cave and I'm here with my co-host, Brittany Eklund. Joining us today is Dr. Samuel Mugo, a professor of analytical chemistry at McEwen University, whose research program involves developing point-of-need frugal smart sensors for human and animal health and wellness, as well as agri-food chemical analytics. Dr. Mugo is also passionate about teaching students to think innovatively and use chemistry to solve societal problems aligned to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, But first, Samuel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. first, uh, we just want to learn a little bit more about you. Um, So what attracted you to the sciences? And specifically, why pursue chemistry? Mm. And I think that's a good question. um, Because I think we are really a totality sometimes, you know, of where we start our lives from. You know, so maybe I like to say that I grew up, you know, in a farm. You, you know, are the tropics. And uh, if you think about the tropics, you know, there's a lot of life, you know, around you, you know, be it the insects, you know, be it the plants. Uh, and, and so I actually used to work in the farm and I was very curious, you know, about uh, the, the, the physical world. And of course, growing up in a farm means that really you are grounded and interacting, you know, a lot uh, with nature. Uh, but, but, but I think it did not really crystallize to me until I grew up and uh, went to the university. And when I went to the university, the situation was uh, you would get enrolled to a program, you know, based on the discipline grades that you get. And, and so I was enrolled, you know, for a Bachelor of Science degree. And then I had the options of choosing between chemistry, computer science, mathematics. And the very first year, you know, you did all those courses. And then mm-hmm. the second year, that's when you had to specialize. And so I was selected sort of, you know, based on my grades, you know, to specialize in computer science and statistics, as well as chemistry. And so I had a difficult choice, you know, choosing between, you know, those two. However, you know, I think my teacher, I I think, made a very big impression on me that connected me, you know, to how I grew up, you know, with regard to, should I say, the centrality of chemistry in nature. And I think he explained it, you know, so vividly, you know, where chemistry comes alive in nature. Mm-hmm. So, so he would draw, for example, you know, those kinds of structures on the board, say a benzene ring, and try to connect it to, you know, this is a makeup, you know, of plants, you know, that I actually grew up seeing and so on. So, so it was so relevant to me, you know, thanks, you know, to that instructor, you know, that made chemistry really alive to me. And, and relatable to, to everything in your life, too. Absolutely, and relatable as well. And, um, of course, you would really connect it, you know, with this idea of uh, medical diagnostics and many applications, you, you know, in the society. You know, you bring it home. And, and I could see myself, you know... Um, 
you, you know, get, getting appealed, you know, to being mm-hmm. a player, you know, in that discipline. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really incredible the effect that a good teacher or mentor can have on you. Like, you literally could have <laughs> gone either way, but... Absolutely. And, and I think that's why I think instruction is such key. You know, it, it inspires students and to some extent, you know, it influences really, you know, the direction that they take, you know, it, it influences their learning. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and so that, that's why I chose actually chemistry because it was so relatable, you know, to, um, you know, to how I grew up and I could see myself, you know, being a practitioner in the field. Because of the relevance, you know, that was brought home, you know, by the by the instructor. And I think it's really interesting because I remember chemistry, you know, in high school being like balancing equations and being like, oh, gosh, I can't right, <laughs> do right, this. Right. But when I was reading through um, like your pre-interview form, mm-hmm. relating it to like life mm-hmm. and even the chemistry of emotions and what mm-hmm. happens with like our bodies and the interactions of those mm. different, you know, hormones and stuff. Right. I was like, oh, I thought this this should be a high school curriculum. <laughs> uh, absolutely. And, and, and I think probably that informs really my teaching. Uh, you, you know, the, the, the way it was taught to me, the relatability, you know, the relevance. I think it's one thing, you know, to balance equations and so on and pass exams. But, but I think, you know, until it's made relevant on the why you are doing it, you know, where do you see it in life? And so I always tell my students, you know, um, if I'm not able to explain why it's relevant, you know, why you should bear the pain of understanding, balancing the equations, probably I'm wasting your time. And, and so I make a lot of effort, you know, to try and help the students I see why are they doing what they are doing? Why are they learning what they are learning? You know, why should my grandmother, you know, their grandmother, you know, who doesn't know anything about chemistry, care to listen, you know, because it's relevant, you know, to her as well. Yeah, well, well it's fantastic. Like, yeah, it seems like you're really passionate about teaching your students to think innovatively about chemistry, especially um, to solve perhaps societal problems uh, aligned to your work or the the work around uh, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Um, What drives your passion to kind of like, I think we, you know, almost touched Mm -hmm. on it a little bit, like the the relating it to something real life. Yeah. And could you tell us a little bit, I guess, in that about what the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals are? Well, and I think as a globe, we've realized, you know, that uh, we are very interconnected. I think previously, you know, the, the world would be divided, you know, often into, you know, the so-called developed countries or what people call the global north. And sort of it would be contrasted, you know, with the global south, you know, what they call the developing countries. But people have realized, you know, most of the problems, you know, that the globe faces, you know, they are very, very interconnected. Mm -hmm. And so the United Nations, um, you know, Sustainable Development Goals, you know, they came up with these 17, you know, overarching global issues, 
you, you know, that the world, you know, should focus on with the understanding, you know, that uh, these global issues, you know, are interconnected. I'll give you an example, you know, something like food security. Which is huge. And like all across, even in big cities here in Canada, like food security is an issue. It, it's a big issue. You, you know, talk about food globalization as well. Chances are, you know, most of the foods that we consume, you know, we don't grow them in Canada. Chances are they come from many different countries, you know, some, you know, from the U.S., you know, some, you know, in these so-called global southern countries. And, and so the, the way the food is produced, for example, you know, in those global southern countries affects, you know, the people who consume those foods, you know, across the world. You know, talk about, you know, water and sanitation. Talk about maybe the biggest issue of our time, the climate change. You know, again, you know, it affects, it affects you know, everyone in the globe. So those are some of, among the others, you know, such as accessible education and so on. So those are some of the issues, you know, that um, listed, you know, in the 17 United Nations, you know, Sustainable Development Goals. And, and the idea is, you know, to, to make sure that as a globe, you, you, you know, we, 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 we are healthy. And, and, and what I mean by healthy means that we've got access, you know, to all these things, irrespective, you know, of where you actually live. And, and so I think the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, you know, really unite us. And so that's why I think, you know, when I'm teaching chemistry, I try to, you know, connect the relevance of the chemistry, you know, to how we can solve, based on the chemistry expertise, the 17, you know, sustainable development goals that unite us, you know, as a, as a globe. And um, I think irrespective, you know, of who is seated, you know, in that class. Chances are, of course, they are interested, you know, with the food that they eat. They are interested in the water that they drink. They are interested, you know, in the quality of education, you know, that uh, they are acquiring. Mm -hmm. The climate, you know, affects, you know, everyone as well. So everyone, you know, finds a place that they can play along in solving, you know, the 17 overarching goals, you know, that connects us, you know, as a people, you know, across the world. And these issues are urgent. You know, if you look at the United Nations, you know, they say the 2030 is the time by when, you know, we should, as a globe, you know, make progress, irrespective of where you are, you know, you can access, you know, some of all these things, you know, that embodies really humanity. And, and, and so equator becomes key, you, you know, on those, you know, 17 issues, you know, that uh, Yeah, because not, not everywhere is, I mean, we, like you said, everywhere is so, so different in how we contribute to that, that it, all these different things. Like every country is so different yeah, in equal, their resources, in equal, not equity, not e equality, yeah, equal right? equal doesn't always mean equitable, so... I mean, that's fantastic. I feel like I need to go back and get another degree <laughs> in the sciences. But first, mm -hmm. I think we need to introduce um, your research. So can you tell us about point of need frugal smart sensors? Mm -hmm. um, 
for people that might not be familiar with that kind of terminology, right. what are they and how do they work? So po point of need, you, you know, chemical analytics, it's sort of a new term, you, you know, to suggest that we need to do things differently in the way we do chemical analysis. Now, now chemical analysis is an overarching issue to all of us. You, you know, whether you are interested in determining how healthy you are, Chances are all of us, you know, we go to our physicians, you know, every year, you know, possibly for our physical exam. And, you know, often, you know, they would ask us, you know, the physician probably, you know, to, uh, you know, have our bloods analyzed, mm -hmm. you know, probably have our urine analyzed, you know, and so on. And all these specimens, you know, they are taken and uh, sent to a centralized lab with equipment, you know, that is localized there. Often most of these equipments, you know, they are fairly big. You know, so chemical analysis, the conventional way of doing it is in a centralized uh, place, you, you know, being ran, you know, by experts. And it's sort of, you know, disconnected, you know, from the person, you know, who is actually um, looking for the answers. You know, yeah. so the answers, you know, come a little bit later, you know, after, after the expert, you know, use these equipment, you know, to analyze in the case, for example, blood sample, urine sample to determine, you know, what is present. And, and so if you look at the footprint, you know, of doing that, you know, one, it takes a lot of time. Most of these equipments, you know, are very, very expensive. Uh, you need, of course, you know, experts, you know, who can run those instrumentation, you know. So, again, it's fairly expensive, you know, to hire experts to do that. Now, now I'll talk about also the fact that, you know, the, the regions um, of the world are different. Not everyone can really afford, you know, these expensive instrumentation. So already you've got, you know, inequality, you know, in the way we do chemical analysis. Not to mention also the idea of time. Chances are if you're a patient, you know, you're looking for those results fairly quickly. You, you know, there is a bottleneck, you know, of the time when you give that, you know, sample for analysis to the time, you know, when you get the results back. You yeah, know, yeah, especially right now, yeah. not only is it taking for, you might be waiting a month, a month and a right. half to even get an appointment right. to get a blood draw. And right. then that's stuck in a Absolutely. The Absolutely. system, and Absolutely. you don't know, you're waiting on results being Absolutely. like, why do I feel this way? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so the point of need, really, you know, is to change the way things are done. You know, instead of, you know, these expensive chemical analytics platforms, you know, instead, you know, we fabricate very small devices that can be attached, you know, for example, to the person, you know, who really need you know the answers and um, you know the person really is involved you know in the data analytics of what they are really you know interested in for example you know in the case of clinical diagnostics you know you would have sensors attached to the body and they can monitor you know things like the heart rate you know they can monitor things like the chemical composition of somebody's sweat and so on and so you can get you know the information in real time and that saves money. Would, mm -hmm. would this be similar to um, people with diabetes who have um, like a, the sensor in their arm? You can take your phone and scan it 
and it'll tell you your blood sugar levels. Is this kind of a similar thing? Absolutely. Maybe that's the most classic example of a very successful point of need, you know, diagnostic systems. And, and, and in fact, you know, when we are trying to develop new systems, usually that's the model because it's been very, very successful. This was something that jumped out to mm. me immediately when mm. I was looking at um, your research was you say that could monitor the chemical composition of somebody's sweat. Right. And I have a question mm. of like, what can you learn from sweat <laughs> and second part right. is flop sweat, like nervous sweat, actually right. different? Because I'm a nervous person, so <laughs> I sweat a lot. My hands get so clammy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and and you guys don't look nervous, but I, I think all of us, you know, have got different levels, you know, of nervousness. No mm -hmm. question. And 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 uh, now think about it. Traditionally, clinical analysis is done by using blood, you, you know, as a specimen of choice. Now, talk about being nervous. You know, if somebody is drawing blood from you, ch chances are you're going to be nervous too. You know, it's a very invasive, you know, sort of um, biological fluid. Mm -hmm. And so, so, so scientists start to think, you, you know, can we look for other non-invasive, you know, biological fluids that land even better, you know, for point of need, you know, diagnostic. For example, you know, even say, you know, you're trying to do the chemical profiling um, or, or the well-being, say, of a baby, you, you know, ch ch chances are, you, you know, they won't be very, very comfortable, you know, the, the, the blood being done yeah. and, and so on. It's very invasive, you know, it's uncomfortable and so on. And so people have been thinking about other ways of doing clinical diagnostics that are not invasive and where you can get, you know, the chemical profiles in fairly good, uh, should I say, um, quality even compared to, to, to blood. And sweat is one of that. You know, sweat has got um, lots of the metabolites, you know, that are present in, in blood. They I could, had no idea. Yes, yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. Sorry right. to cut you off. but uh, Absolutely. You, you know, so you can actually do lots of disease diagnostics, you know, from the chemical from composition of the sweat. Wow. And, of course, it's fairly easy to get the sweat, you know. It, uh, it's not uncomfortable, you know, to to draw the sweat. You know, right on us, on this table, you know, we are sweating. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's fairly easy, you know, to do uh, sweat diagnostics and, you know, get a lot of clinical information from it. So how did you get involved with um, doing this point of need uh, research? I think that the reason I got involved is um, I, I look at the footprint. Again, I said I grew up in the tropics. You know, I started in an environment, you know, where we didn't have lots of resources. And, and, and so I cared a lot, you know, to find approaches other than the conventional where we do chemical analytics with big instrumentation, but instead... You, you, you know, to look for better ways of doing chemistry, you know, that uh, everyone has got access to. And, and so when I w went for my postdoc, actually, after my PhD, I specifically chose, you, you know, to go into an environment, you know, where people are trying to make uh, these very inexpensive platforms 
you, you know, that can be used, you know, towards um, clinical diagnostics or even agri-food, you know, monitoring and so on. Reason being, you know, it saves money, you know, um, and you, you can, it's accessible, you know, to, 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 to everyone. And like I said, you know, you get real-time, real-time data from it. There's a, there's a term that you used um, that these sensors are um, democratize right. the field of chemistry right. Right. analytics. Right. Could you explain a little bit of what you mean by that? Right, right. And uh, the democratization is sort of we borrow this term, you know, I guess from the politics, you know, and so on. Uh, you know, about the idea of participation, you, you know, where everyone finds an opportunity, you know, to participate, for example, in the science, in the data analytics, in collecting the data. And the, the, the good thing with this point of need devices, you know, is that, um, you, you know, you don't have people being necessarily used as specimen. Instead, you know, you are giving them the tools that they actually need and they collect, you know, the data themselves. You know, for example, you know, I attach, you know, say a sensor on my arm to actually monitor, you know, again, the chemical composition of the sweat, you know, that I'm generating so that I can get, you know, the well-being information, you know, that is related to me. Yeah. And if at all I see an anomaly, you know, you know, then I can consult, you know, probably a physician, you know, and so on. So the idea of democratization really, you know, is changing the playing field, you know, where each one of us, you know, can truly participate and we give them the tools that they need, you know, in terms of um, generating, you know, the data that they need to make the decisions, you know, related like I said, you know, to their well-being, probably if they are farmers, you know, to the well-being of their enterprise, you know, and so on. That's really interesting. And, and, and maybe also to, to comment on that, you know, back, you know, to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, is the fact that, you know, you, you find most of the global southern countries, you know, the truth is, you know, they cannot afford the conventional chemical analytics platforms. Um, you, you, you know, like I said, you know, they need centralized lab, lots of infrastructure, lots of money. Some of these, you know, environments, you know, they've got uh, restraints in terms of how much money is available, for example, for their healthcare and so on. And so this point of need devices, again, democratizes that in the sense what's available to us in the global north, you know, can be available to everyone irrespective of where they are. Because these devices, you know, they are inexpensive. And those people, you know, can equally generate the data that they need relevant, you know, to their context. And so in Interesting. The, in, and, and so it democratizes that, you know, I see what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I yeah. see what you, what you mean now by that for sure. Um, so you've been working on these point of need kind of frugal smart sensors for about five years? About five years, maybe a little bit longer, um, uh, maybe around 14 years, actually. Oh, that's a lot longer. Wow. It, it is. Um, <laughs> but maybe over the last five years, I've focused a lot on the point of need devices, specifically for clinical diagnostics, especially wearable sensors, you, you know, where we can use them specifically to analyze the sweat composition and then use that information for clinical applications. 
and also the point of needs, you know, for food, um, for, for analysis of food quality. So that's what I focused in, you know, in the last five years. Okay. Yeah. So can you give us just in like an idea of, for example, um, if you've been working for the last five years, kind of focused on clinical diagnostics, what are some examples of things that could be diagnosed using one of these smart sensors or, you know, something that might raise a red flag? Right, right. Now, they are very versatile. And, and that's the beauty of chemistry. You, you, you know, chemistry is very, very versatile. Meaning that you can almost create a sensor for anything if you understand its chemistry. And, and, and so what we actually do, you, you know, is create, um, you, you know, what we call molecular receptors or plastics, really, you know, that are smart, that can actually capture any analyte or any compound or any chemical that we are interested in. In our interest, you know, in the last probably three or four years, you know, has been chemical compounds um, that are relevant or that can be an indicator of mental health. And so we look for things like uh, stress hormones, you know, that would be present in sweat. And like I said, you know, we can make plastics or, or what we call hydrogels, you know, that are very, very specific, you know, to capture some of these stress hormones. And when you capture them, you, you know, you can always play around, you know, with uh, chemical properties that you can measure now that you have captured what you are interested in. In this case, you know, stress hormones, yeah. I mean, that's incredible. So this sensor could analyze your sweat and tell you, like, you have elevated stress hormones, like you need to chill out? <laughs> uh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and in real time, in real time. And that's a beauty because I think we all know that uh, we respond to the environment and, and the environment keeps changing, you know. You keep getting exposed to different things, you know, across the day or during the day. Yeah, hour by hour sometimes. Absolutely, so. absolutely. And so you can actually monitor, you know, what are the stress triggers, you know, as you are doing your activities of the day. And I think that makes you able to, or informs you, you know, how you need to adapt or how you need to, to respond when you've got that data, you know, available to you. And so, yes, you know, you can actually monitor, you know, your stress levels, you know, using what you are developing in the lab in I, real time. Yeah. And I think that's so amazing because if you're ever a person who's dealt with like anxiety, stress, sometimes the biggest problem to treating or mm, adapting to living with that right. is knowing why, Absolutely. why do I feel stressed? Why Absolutely. do I feel anxious? Why do I feel like I'm going to lose it right Absolutely. now? So being able to through the day be like, Hmm, I'm right. seeing a pattern here. Right. Now that I've identified the problem, right. I can actually start to address it. Absolutely. So I think that that's really, really it's, fantastic. It's, it's really interesting. Yeah. And my, my, my mind is going so many different places mm. with this research. Mm. It's going, okay, this is the first step of human cyborgs. Mm. Like this is us being able to monitor what our body's doing, be able to see what the insides, and it's not necessarily like in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, human cyborgs, like right. crazy, like right. a huge global event of everybody having, being a computer themselves. Right. 
and I'm starting to like the idea more and more yeah, as I'm yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, I think I need one of these. <laughs> Being just a human right. is very hard. Right. You never know why your body is doing things. Right, so. right. And, and we are very different too, you know, we respond very differently. And, and, and I think if you look at, you know, the conventional way of doing clinical diagnostics, it's very depersonalized, you know, but we, we certainly need, you know, more personalized, you know, clinical diagnostics, you know, because we are very, very different. And so this point of need devices, you know, brings the idea of personalized uh, medicine, which is, which is really needed. Well, and clinical diagnostics to mental health, which... Right. For the most part, and I'm not an expert on this, but for the most part, mental health, there aren't a lot of blood tests usually you can take. A lot of it is diagnosed through um, therapy, psychiatry, things that are very expensive and not often accessible to a lot of people. So I think that's really fantastic. Yeah. Um, Well, uh, you mentioned you're currently working to optimize these devices with in collaboration with people from the UK, Netherlands. Um, to translate this to a commercial platform? Yes, I am. Um, When might these devices become commercially available to the public? Now, that's a good question. And um, I I really care about, you know, knowledge translation. I I think it's one thing to do cool stuff and they remain in the (laughs) lab. I, I think it's another, you know, when you get these platforms being used you know by the public which which is really the purpose of knowledge you know to to, to have the community you know use that which is being developed and having said that you know these platforms equally you know take a lot of time you, you know the, the ecosystem you know to build the ecosystem from the lab you know to getting af- a user experience design absolutely. application absolutely absolutely so so i think we are in a stage you know where we've confirmed especially you know the stress sensors what what we call emotional sensors you know work very very well and actually, the gentleman, you know, in UK, after he saw publications, you know, they contacted us, you know, about um, working together. Them, they are electronic engineers, and, and as we are chemists, you know, so what they are doing is to create an electronic smartwatch that we can insert, you know, our, you know, sensors, our stress sensors. And we, we, we are hoping, you know, that by the summer of this year, you know, that we're going to have enough pieces, you know, that we can actually beta test more, you, you know, with a lot more people. So I'm hoping by the end of the year, you know, we can actually have, um, you know, hundreds of devices, you know, that we yeah. can play with, you know, and give to students, you know, to play with. And yeah, they, I was yeah, like, if you're looking I'm not a for chemistry student, but <laughs> that's, that's, that's amazing. This, yeah. this sounds like, um, pretty, pretty, like this could affect millions and millions of, of people in a, in a very positive way. And, uh, this might be a good time for us to take a short break. And uh, we'll be back after um, some of these short messages. Are you cool and do you like cool things? Then you'll like River City Revival. They're a local place that supports other local places. From sourcing locally made foodstuffs to supporting local artists and musicians through fun events each week. You can catch comedy, hip hop, singer songwriters or come for the funk work full band open jam on Sundays. Plus, according to our own Dylan, best wings in town, hands down. 
You can find them right underneath the city's famous Starlight Room, and you can check out their menu and upcoming events at revival-edmonton.com. See you there. And we are back. So next up, um, we would love to talk about your research on transdermal drug delivery platforms. So can you explain to us um, kind of how these work and tell us about your research? Right. So the, 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 the transdermal drug delivery, actually, they are very connected, you, you know, with the wearable sensors. Um, I, I think we try to be holistic. I think it's one thing, you know, to do detection. But after you realize, you know, probably, you know, say the cortisol levels are high or you're being stressed out, what can you do about it? So, so we thought, you know, to actually close the gap, you know, then we need a way, you know, to release, you know, the therapeutic, you know, on the same platform. So you do the sensing and then you release, you know, the therapeutic, you know, on demand. So if the stress level is high, probably you need a dose of, you know, something that can regulate that and that can be released, you know, right, you know, on the skin. Um, and, and again, this is to try and do things differently and, and, and make, you, you know, um, should, should I say therapy, you know, fairly comfortable instead, for example, of using hypodermic needles, you know, to do drug injections, you know, which of course we all know is very uncomfortable. So you can have wearable patches, you know, that releases the drug on demand when the patient, you know, actually needs it. So you cannot, again, um, you, you know, Dylan brought the issue, you know, of uh, the glucose sensors. Mm -hmm. and, and the model for that now is that, you know, they've got an insulin pump, you know, at the same time. So you do the diagnostics, you know, for the glucose monitoring, if the glucose is high, you know, you've got, you know, an insulin pump. So it's very, very similar, you know, where you can uh, use it, you know, really for other therapies as well, you know, beyond the glucose. You know, I think there's a lot of empty space in, in my chest cavity where I could just have like all these little devices with like insulin and like all these other things that when you find a chemical imbalance to fully start thinking about the human cyborg thing. Right, I right. think this is a thing that we need to start looking at. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, and, and, and so this mic, so, so, so the way we design it, you know, is that, you know, we've got the sensors and then we've got these transdermal delivery. And maybe somebody would ask, you know, how does a drug actually get delivered, you know, to the body? And you have the skin, and of course the skin is a barrier. You know, so the way we do it is we've got uh, some very small micro needles, you know, that we attach on the skin that only poke, you know, the barrier. And now, you wouldn't feel pain, you know, until, you, you know, you penetrate the barrier, you know, to where the nerve endings are. Mm -hmm. But our microneeders, you know, are not that long, you know, so they only poke, you know, the barrier. So you don't actually feel pain. And then the drug is released, you know, to what people call the interstitial layer mm -hmm. that is just um, above, you know, where the nerve endings are. So it's okay. a very comfortable system. Yeah. So what would it, yeah. would it feel like a little like Velcro? <laughs> well, a little each, you know, probably, okay. you know, and um, the, 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 drug is, uh, the drug is released. So I think it's a very, should I say, convenient 
um, way, uh, you know, of doing uh, d drug um, release, drug release. So what are some examples of treatments or therapies that can be delivered through these platforms in particular? Now, th th there are a couple of them. Um, for, for example, you know, I I'm drawn to mental health. Mm -hmm. and, and of course, I mean, people who use lots of, say, you know, um, antidepressants, you know, and, or stimulants, you know, for example. And I can see on the table right now we are taking water, but we don't have caffeine. Ca caffeine is, a, <laughs> is an excellent example, you, you know, of something that can actually be delivered, you know, right on the skin. Another example, you know, is cortisol. Okay. Okay. And it's very interesting because while we say that cortisol, you know, is a stress hormone. Yeah. You can have some cases, you know, where you've got very low amounts of cortisol. And when you've got very low amount of cortisol, that can equally be a bad thing. Some people call it, you know, hypocortisolism, hypocortisolism. Okay. And so that is where a patient sometimes is immunocompromised. And so they are not able to produce, you know, a lot of cortisol, but especially, you know, with people who are undergoing um, cancer treatment. And, and so again, in that case, you know, it's possible, you know, to actually deliver, you know, the cortisol, you know, right, you know, on the skin. Wow. Maybe another example, you know, is, um, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about it, but from the chemical point of view, I can. It's cannabis. Okay. All right. Um, the, the active compound, you know, is what you call the tetrahydrocannabinol. Mm -hmm. THC. The THC, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and, you, you know, um, there are many ways, you know, of administering it. I think so, some people, it's administered, you know, by smoking and so on. And there's so many people who might be uncomfortable, you know, with that kind of therapy. As especially, you know, if at all, again, I'm not talking about, you know, using it recreationally. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I'm only focusing on the medical but use. But even like smoking THC right. is arguably yeah. not great for your lungs. Absolutely. So it's not yeah. maybe an ideal Absolutely. Absolutely. method of delivery. Absolutely. So, so, so again, you can really use it for lots of different types of uh, therapies, you, you know, with the examples, you know, that I just gave. Okay. I'm kind of interested. Um, so these would be more of like a short term. It would sense, say, stress levels rising and it would be able to deliver right. a dose of whatever you need. Right. Um, could this kind of sensor also be used perhaps for other kinds of drugs that you would take every day? For example, you wouldn't want a sensor that sensed stress and then released an antidepressant right. per se. But right. what if you were a person who took an antidepressant right. Right. daily right. and you had a terrible memory? And right. so would it be able to sense, you know, like a falling level and be like, you missed your dose. Right. Oop, here you go. Right. So, so yes, you can use it, you know, for many different types of therapies. And of course, like I said, you know, it's much more convenient. It's a lot more cheaper. Talk about waste as well. Mm -hmm. you, you know, the hypodermic needles, you know, are one of the materials, you know, that produce a lot of medical waste. 
Yeah. You, you know, again, um, so, so, so using these types of therapies, you know, you're also trying to solve, you know, the medical waste problem. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe you could that's like, a great way. instead Thinking of having EpiPens, right. maybe it would be more affordable and accessible yeah. to be like, well, you're yeah. having a crazy allergic reaction. Like, bam, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so these platforms um, kind of use the same technology we were talking about before with the smart sensors. Mm-hmm. Um, are there also plans f- to translate these technologies to commercial platforms and what might the timeline be on that as well? Because all the things that I care about are, yeah. are like, how can we get that's this right. out to the that's world? Right, that's <laughs> right, that's right. And I think that's a good question. Um, uh, y- y- yes, there are. In fact, my collaboration with the people in Netherlands is specifically, y- you know, to pair, you know, the detection and the drug delivery. So the people we are working with Netherlands, you know, they're actually oncologists. And, and so they are interested, you know, in delivering therapies, you know, right from the skin. You know, where you can do, say, the sensing, for example, of different cortisol levels. If a patient has got this condition of, you know, the hypocortisolism, you, you know, then they can actually deliver the hydrocortisone, you know, right, you know, on the skin. So this one is a bit further off. You know, we started just that collaboration this year. So in the summertime, you know, we will be trying to develop uh, the prototypes. And then hopefully, you know, next year and so on, that's when we are really hoping to ramp up, you know, the idea of translating that, you know, possibly into, you know, into a commercial platform. Now, now, do you think that releasing this to the public or on a commercial platform, there could be some misuses of, of something like this? That's a good point. Um, I, I, I think anything can be used inappropriately. As you well know, I think people are ingenious. Yeah. And... and and ingenuity, you know, means that uh, we can release, you know, some of these products. And those products, you know, are going to inspire, you know, others to produce other products, you know, that are beneficial, you know, as well. I think we always say, you know, knowledge is cumulative. You know, you look at what has been done out there and, um, you, you know, you enhance it, you know, probably, you know, for another application. We, we say that's the art of innovation, you know, looking at what's available and probably repurposing it, you know, for another application. Yeah. So, so actually my focus more is what can be, you know, in a of positive course. sense. Because when you release it, uh, people are ingenious, you know, they, 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 they innovate, you know, a lot more. And it can be used, you know, for other types of therapies, you know, that we are not doing in our lab ourselves. Or other types of diagnostics, you know, that we are not doing yeah. in the lab. So, 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 I, so I think it's going to be a net, a huge net, you know, benefit, you know, to, to, to the community in the sense. What kind of therapies would you focus on first? Like, mm-hmm. what would be the first ones... If you're, mm. you know, once you get to the stage where you're ready to start mm. creating mm. these um, delivery patches. Right. right. Now, it, it's, it's very important that for, for, from my end, you know, I always go with what's available to me. Um, and, and, and what has got, you know, should I say the least, you know, of part resistance, especially in terms of regulations and so on. So if something requires a lot of regulations, you know, then I have to work, you know, with people or experts in that field. 
And, and that's sort of what we are doing. For example, like I said, with the people in Netherlands, if at all it's something that is related to drug delivery, you know, of patients. Again, I'm not a medical doctor myself. You know, so again, I have to work, you know, with people in that field, you know, who understand the regulatory aspects that are related to that. And and so actually from my end, um, I, I think I'm more interested, you know, with things related to lifestyle that do not require, you know, extreme levels of regulation. And for issues that need extreme levels of regulation, you know, like I said, you know, I work with the medical doctors and we collaborate and uh, they, they can take care, you know, of the pain of the regulation because they actually understand it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Okay. Um, I guess we will jump right into now sensors. And these are the same kind of point of need sensors. Um, but you're using them to monitor food quality. Right. Um, right. So this is a really fascinating topic. So can you tell us all about how you are using these sensors in this very, very different application? Right, right. Uh, well, it, it sounds different, um, but, but, but from the chemistry point of view, they're, they're very identical. And I think from chemistry, we always say what we look at, you know, is nothing but biochemical machines, <laughs> including ourselves. But so it's food, you know, it's made up of, you know, different types of chemicals. And maybe that's what we always say, you know, about the evolutionary convergence. Things are very, very similar. Mm -hmm. If I look at a plant and its uh, physiology, for example, when it gets stressed out, just like a person, you know, it releases, you know, certain types of uh, chemicals. They may be slightly different, you know, than a human being or than an animal. Yeah. But nonetheless, you know, it responds by releasing, you know, different types of well, chemicals. don't they say when you cut grass, the smell of the cut grass is actually the grass being like, ah! <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> that's so, horrifying. So, that's right. That's right. <laughs> you, you know, so, so yes, they're very similar. So, 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 so different application. But at the chemical level, things are very, very similar. So, so yes, we've been trying to develop, you know, uh, wearable sort of sensors that can index food quality, particularly um, foods that spoil quickly. Now, they say that, that almost 30%, you know, of the food is wasted, you know, at the distribution chain. You know, so that can be, you know, at the grocery store when that food is being transported, you know, from one location to another. I think we all know that, that we are experiencing, you know, this glut, you know, in the supply chain right yeah. now. So who knows, you know, there might be equally, you know, lots of foods, you know, that get wasted, of course, from spoilage. And, and so what we are trying to do, you know, is creating sensors that are still wearable, but in this case, you know, that attaches on the food, for example, a piece of fish, and then it can monitor, you know, the quality of that fish, you know, in transit, you know, and when it's on the shelf. I, I don't know if you've ever gone to a shelf or, or a grocery store, and for most people, the way we determine if the food is good qualities by smelling it. 
uh, you know, which is not a very, should I say, very sensitive, <laughs> you know, way not. of doing no, it. No, that's right. That's yeah. right. Not a very scientific that's method right, of calculating right, right. freshness. You look at it, you smell it, <laughs> that's right. poke it. That's right. That's right. That's right. This particular piece of the point of sensor um, technology is so promising to me is that food waste and food production things like best before dates um i think a lot of people think of them as expiration dates so we are wasting so much food all the time imagine the commercial kitchen applications to these sensors having sensors on our food in our refrigerations keeping people more safe reducing the risk of foodborne illness and reducing waste right and reducing waste right right and, and maybe just to point out, you know, the fact that, you know, then we make decisions by assuming. And, 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 and I think that's what, Brittany, you said, you know, just, bec- just because, you know, something says um, best before this, you, you know, then you throw it out, you know, after that date. Because you assumed, you know, that uh, it's uh, not good to consume. Yeah, it's like a stigma or something that's right but 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 again if at all you had sensors that index the quality of that then it informs you 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 know to make the most appropriate decision based on evidence you know rather than assumptions and 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 so yes and of course think about the climate change and the footprint you know of throwing that bucket of that bucket of milk, you, you know, that costs a lot, actually, you know, to produce. Mm-hmm. And yeah. to package right. and then to get shipped across maybe a province. Right. Maybe it's coming right. from Ontario, like right. the transportation costs, fuel burning, like it's right. the food production, right. how we eat and what we eat is right. such a major contributor right. to climate change right. and like food inequality. Right. Like grocery stores have to throw out food. Right. Right. When there are literally people who are hungry and that's need right. to eat. So that to me is like, yeah, but just, that's just a different crazy. <laughs> so have you ever, have either of you been to the Telus Smart Home when it's touring around? Like a few years ago, there's the Telus Smart Home. It was a trailer that they brought to like this, the Telus Space and Science Center. Well, uh, Telus made this smart home. Right. You walk up to the door, it scans you with a with their Xbox Connect. Right. And it's it recognizes your face and it opens the door for you and things right. like that. Right. Um, same with the facial recognition on our phones. Right. But the kitchen, I was extremely uh, intrigued by right. because they had the smart fridge and right. the smart cooktop. Okay. So you would have food in your fridge. It would, you know. At that time, they don't have any like the actual technology that they said they did. Mm. But essentially, each your food in your fridge has a scanner a tag on it, and it right. recognizes when you've run out of it, right. and it puts it on an order right. list. Right. But when you put your food on your counter, right. there's a little scanner that tells you what the composition of the food is. Right. Okay, right. this is rice. Right. It's this much protein and right. this much right. so and so. So looking at the different different applications. Right of how we might be able to use um, these new sensors that you're working on. Um, but f- this, what we're more specifically talking about, the production of food and the, mm-hmm. the traveling mm-hmm. of food and everything, mm-hmm. um, how are there other uses for them? Uh, maybe examples of like the stress levels in plants versus monitoring the freshness of packaged food, I guess. And, and I think you really raise a good point um, <laughs> about the idea of... Um, you know, precision sort of nutrition. 
Now, we are getting into a world, you know, that is very, very interconnected, you know, digitally. And not just interconnected, you know, in terms of people, you know, but in terms of the things, you know, that we engage with. And and I'm sure you're, what you talked about, Dale, and is this idea of, you know, the internet of things, mm-hmm. you, you know, where be it, you know, the food, you know, that you're consuming, you know, sort of is digitized in a way. And the way you're engaging with it, you know, you're generating, you know, a lot of data when you consume it. You, you know, you can even determine, you know, the amount of calories, you know, like you said, you know, that you're consuming and so on. So, so I think the sensors, you know, are fast tracking us. The food sensors are fast tracking us, you know, in these to these, you know, frontier, you know, of precision nutrition, you know, where you just consume and track actually, you know, how much you consume, you know, based on your needs. Yeah, it's very interesting, you know, in terms of the divisions of the world. That in North America, you, you know, you talk about a problem with overnutrition, where we consume too much. Whereas in other parts of the world, you know, the problem is undernutrition. Yeah. You know, so again, you know, the precision sensors, you know, can help in that end, you, you know, to, uh, should I say, bridge that gap. You know, for us in North America, we just want to consume just what we need because yeah. there's too much around us. Other parts of the world, you know, you, you know, they want to consume enough as well. So again, um, you, you know, the sensors will be very helpful, you know, towards not just monitoring the quality, but also monitoring the composition and the calorie content, you know, and the nutrients content, you know, in some of these foods. And of course, indexing, you know, how much you're consuming and so on. For many women mm-hmm. in the entire world, mm-hmm. um, something like iron deficiency right is a huge deal, especially in pregnant women. Um, Would a point of need sensor be able to monitor from like a non-invasive blood work that could say, hey, you need to be supplementing with iron or you need to eat more kale or (laughs) whatever? It's a great point. And and I think, you know, Brittany, you're being a good student. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) In, In the sense... And and that is the art of innovation. You, you know, as somebody, somebody who is not a chemist, you know, recognizes, you know, probably a, a need out there. And certainly it's in the purview, you know, of chemistry. And a very, very good problem. And I think in lots of countries, you know, particularly, you know, the tropical countries, you know, iron deficiency is a big, big problem. Now think about it. It's a very simple way to detect, you know, nutrient or other iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, it's something that can be, in fact, you're giving me an idea now. Well, yeah, <laughs> but like I'm even thinking for yeah. like, you know, um, during pregnancy, right. like folic acid, right. things like that. Right. If you right. had a patch right. that was monitoring right. your deficiencies right. Right. and even when you say right, right now we're right. living in a culture here of excess, right. like your patch could be like, Yo, Yo, you're eating you too much. You need to eat some vegetables. <laughs> right, like maybe right, you're right. you haven't got enough vitamin right, C today. Right, so right, right. most people, right. I would say, the majority right. of people might not be highly educated right. on nutrition. Right. It's not something I think is taught enough. Right, so right, right. 
across Canada, right. in every community, people could benefit from understanding, oh, I'm not actually getting what I need. Right, right. And like right, right. that could solve so many health issues down the road. So. Absolutely. And, and, and I think you're right. And the way it's done right now, even in simple things, you know, as determining deficiency in nutrients such as iron, you know, um, the patient, you know, goes to the hospital, you know, of course, after so much has happened. You know, for them to go to the hospital, it means, you know, they are doing very poorly. And blood is drawn, you know, again, back to a centralized lab to monitor something as simple, you know, as iron content. Again, you know, with sweat, you know, that's something that can easily be done. You know, the monitoring of uh, iron, just using a wearable sensor right on sweat that we produce every day. So, again, it can be you know, in real time, you know, day by day, what, what do you need? What mm -hmm. do you need? Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's like so fascinating. Um, so for kind of this work with the sensors, applying them to, to food quality, where did, how did you get involved with this? Like, where did the idea come from to mm -hmm. apply this technology to food and, and right. health and wellness? Right. right. Maybe for me, that was the easiest actually to get into, you know, because I think all of us eat food. And like I said, you know, where we grow up, it, you know, informs, you know, how we think and how we engage, you know, with life, even when we get older. Like I said, I grew up in the tropics, you know, where food get wasted, um, partly because, you know, there's no preservation, especially when I was growing up, things have changed now, of course. Um, no preservation, you know, and so on. You know, so food waste, you know, becomes a significant problem in an environment, you know, where there's very limited uh, of that resource. And then, of course, you come again, you know, to a different context, you know, where we produce or consume, you know, a lot of food, you know, that is imported with a huge, you know, environmental footprint. And so, again, you know, that draws my attention. So I'm always drawn, you know, to working on areas, you know, on, on, on conservation, you know, can we just use less? And, and, and can we conserve, you know, the idea of, um, you, you, you know, wasting food and so on? Like I said, you know, if you look at the statistics, big, big problem in North America, you know, 30%, you know, of what we actually, you know, get to the grocery stores, you know, and so on, you know, is actually wasted. Big, big problem. And, and so, I, you know, I was drawn to, can we conserve the food that we produce. And then the idea of the interconnected interconnectedness, you know, with these 17, you, you know, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, uh, food security remains a big problem across the world. And I think for a long time in North America, you know, we were averse or unaware, you know, of food security. Mm -hmm. But I think the COVID, you know, is bringing it home that you'd go to the grocery stores now and then you realize, you know, for most of us, you know, food insecurity can happen anywhere. So in order for this to work, it would have to be pretty inexpensive for for producers and stuff to have to attach one of these to, um, say, like a fish producer or something like that. Um, 
with would such a widespread application be achievable with with something like this? Absolutely, and and it's back to the idea of point of need. Point of need by definition, you know, you want them to be as inexpensive, you know, as possible, you know, for it to be actually feasible. So a type of sensors actually we've got a budget, you know, of two dollars. So the sensor itself, you know, should not cost more than two dollars. Wow. And and so again, you know, I guess that's achievable, you know, to to to, to lots of people. Yeah, I mean, you could look at this as um, I, I as soon as we started thinking about it, it's like, okay, well, does every head of celery need a sticker or need a need a sensor, or do we incorporate this into like a machine, uh, like a like we have temperature guns? Mm-hmm. So if we have like a little gun, you just like tap it down onto right. the, right. so you could have one thing for multiple things. Right. Right. But um, yeah, no, but it's achievable. It, it, so it, like it, it two dollars added cost to, to something like that, but it could also extend the use of, of a lot of this food. And, and, and maybe that's the other point, you know, that we have to really look at uh, the costs of not doing something. I, I think the cost of what is actually wasted, and should I say the multi-layers, oh, fair enough. the yeah. multi-layers of cost that people forget, you know, to put in their calculations of what's costing, for example, to produce food or to waste food. And so the idea of conserving food, you know, I think um, we, we need to invest more in that. But as I said, you know, we've made sure that the types of sensors that we have are not a barrier, you know, just uh, because of because of cost. Well, I think that this kind of technology, um, if inexpensive and if available, could play a part in this kind of growing movement against food waste that we're seeing in the world. Right. I don't see why you couldn't lobby the government to mm. say, actually, you know, at least all perishable products in Canada must carry these sensors or right. something like that. Right. Like it's... Right. Maybe that's 10, 15 years in the future, but right. like... And, and, and again, if you think also about um, the impacts, you know, so I think of food freshness, food quality, and, and then back, I guess, to health, you know, food poisoning. I, I think if you add all that cost, pr- probably productivity as well, you know, if somebody is poisoned, they won't go to work, you know, maybe for a couple of... So, so, so it really, really adds up. And so I think... As stakeholders, you know, I think we need to think about, you know, the interconnectedness, you know, of things and try to solve some of these issues, um, especially, you know, but I think using technology, we can do that. Imagine a grocery store that has a a computer server room to monitor all of the the vegetables that they have. Um, And instead of instead of having to spend time and go and look at all the fruit or whatever you have to do, all that information's there. Right. So it can send you an alert that says, oh, hey, you remember row three that has the mm-hmm. iceberg lettuce? Right. The one in the back needs to get thrown away right. or something right. like right. that, right? right? I think for meat, mm-hmm. for meat especially, mm-hmm. just because um, like animal production is so hard on the environment, what kind of energy went into raising this animal transporting this animal it is an, a living thing right basically that is not alive anymore right, and then right. we're gonna take that and package right. it right. and throw it in the garbage right. and it's right. like right. such an egregious <laughs> crime is. against it humanity it so it is. It is. And, and in fact i like the way you're putting it i think it's a 
it, it, it's about it, it's almost um, unethical. It, it, it almost borders on an ethical issue. You, you know, I think when you produce something, and especially in the case of animals, you know, and then with all that footprint, you, you know, they end up in the garbage. And with inequality, you know, that uh, we face across the world. And yes, I think we've got the technology, you know, to solve that. Because we do. You know, we got all these sensors that we are talking about that we can track. You know, the food from the way it's grown. You know, lots of people now care about what they are consuming and the way it's grown. You know, you can track that food all the way, you know, until it becomes, you know, a nutrient, you know, for someone. And I think, you know, we need, you know, to invest in those technologies, you know, that, should I say secure, really, uh, you know, our future, and that secure, you know, our globe. This definitely seems like something a lot of money needs to get behind. Mm -hmm. You know, the, I hope you have enough funding to be able to make this make this possible because I think there'd be a lot of people interested in funding a project like this. Yeah, we are getting towards the end. But before we move away from this, again, very fascinating concept. Um, and yeah, huge ethical implications. Uh, where is this kind of research like how far are we do you guys have a workable sensor like when might we see this technology being used mm. now, now the, the, the good thing i think with what we do we, we, we do applied chemistry you, you know so before we talk about it you, you know it's not just an idea you know it's something that we have developed and uh, should, should, should i say we've got um, a, a working prototype you know, so the things that we talked about, you know, are things probably we've some, you know, published on. And to publish in our field, you know, you need a working prototype. So we've got, yes, you know, a working prototype. Now, to go back to Dylan's point, you know, that uh, you, you need investment. And I think we are in that space, you know, of looking actually for investment, you know, to close that gap of having prototypes, you know, to making things into commercial products. And so, so most of my time, you know, is really spent, you know, looking for collaborators, you know, looking for money, you know, to try and, uh, you know, um, get, get these prototypes, you know, into... In, you know, into lots of prototypes that can be tested, you know, and then, you know, into into commercial platforms. Okay. I mean, I would give to a GoFundMe. If there is a GoFundMe for this <laughs> yeah. research, yeah. you have my well, few sounds, dollars yeah, yeah. <laughs> that de I have. Definitely sounds like it should be a federally funded project. It sounds like this could better a lot of Canadians and a lot of people in the world. So, um and, 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 and maybe I should acknowledge that, you know, that most of the work that we have actually done, the reason it was done in the first place, you know, is, is because it was funded. Funded, exactly. You, you know, so yes, we've got, you know, an NSAC Tricancel grant, you know, that uh, we use, you know, to uh, do the work that we do, to pay the students, you know, get the reagents that we need. Um, and, and, and so we are really, really thankful for that. Do, do we need a lot more, you know, to scale up, you know, to create uh, in commercial products? We certainly do. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, before we let you go, um, we just want to leave the conversation with you and just ask, um, do you have any last words of wisdom or something that we didn't cover in the episode today? Um, 
uh, basically anything, maybe something new you're working on. Uh, we just want to leave it with you to say anything that you'd like to say. Well, I, maybe I should first say and, and, and acknowledge, you know, the fact that what we do, you, you know, we largely do it with the students. You know, we really engage the students in the whole of this process. And, and, and so my research program, really, you know, it's about, um, y yes, creating these products. However, most of it, you know, is having the students involved in the art of innovation and having them trained, you know, in this art of innovation. Because, of course, for most of us, we're only going to be here for a short time. But when you've got, you know, lots of students, you know, then you are able to scale that mindset, you know, and they can go and, uh, you know, produce. Future generations. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so I would say, you know, most of my research, yes, in most cases I come up with the idea, but the people who actually do the execution, you, you know, are my excellent, uh, my excellent students. Big shout out to the students. Well, that is um, everything we have for you, unless there's anything last, last chance. So again, thank you, you know, for this opportunity, you know, to engage and uh, to, to have my, uh, some of our research, not my, just our research, um, you know, ventures, um, you know, um, to, to, to the audience of this podcast. Maybe my other comment, my very last comment, you know, is the idea of investing in innovation ecosystems. Um, if, if you look at, should I say, different countries, um, the innovation ecosystem is such that you've got products that we are making in the lab, and for them to end up, you know, in the marketplace, you, you, you know, you need to invest in the entire ecosystem. Now, in Canada, actually, you know, we've got a significant gap in, in that ecosystem, particularly in knowledge translation. You, you know, where we do excellent, I think, you know, generation of ideas, developing of prototypes. But in that ecosystem, I think, you know, to end up with a finished product, you know, some of that technology is lost and doesn't end up in the community. And, and I think we should be very, I think, uh, intentional. Uh, all stakeholders, you know, universities, you know, governments, you know, and so on, to, to make sure, you know, that our innovations, you know, do not get lost in this exactly. thing that we call a chasm. You, you, you know, between knowledge translation. And I think our universities, you know, should really invest in that, in incubators, you know, and so on, that tap into these ideas, you know, that... Really being, see them to fruition, absolutely, absolutely, for sure. Absolutely, absolutely. And not just by the faculty members, but also I think the students. I've worked with many, many students, and they always come up with just amazing ideas that, you know... If we provide that environment, you know, to incubate those ideas, now these guys, you know, can, you know, develop those ideas, develop businesses out of those ideas. So my point is, I think we need to really fund the entire ecosystem, you know, to make sure the investment that we put in, you know, in research early on, you know, we get a return out of it, you know, by having it translated into final products that the communities can use. 
That's a really great point. I think it's fantastic. Samuel, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, This has been another episode of Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast of McEwen University. Well, that's all we have for today's episode of Research Recasted. If today's episode left you positively charged, please follow up with any links in the episode description to learn more. If you think we've got chemistry, you can support us in this podcast by visiting Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to catch new episodes every two weeks. Also, check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Dylan Cave and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producer is Ray Bereed. 